Good morning, fellowship. It's already been a great morning. It's going to get even better because we get to celebrate baptisms at the end of our service today. It's, these are always some of my favorite services. Uh, speaking of some favorite services or one of my favorite services last week was a wonderful expression of the body of Christ. If you missed it, uh, you missed a, a special moment here at, at Fellowship. Eric Hoffman taught on John 3.16, you know, obviously maybe the best known verse in all the Bible. And the, uh, the image he used was of the John 3.16 sign that we see in all the baseball games, football games, at least, you know, through the 80s and all that. And then at the end, he invited anyone who believes, you know, whosoever believes, to come up on this stage and sign their name on that sign. And you may have seen it when you came in. It's in the lobby out there. It's on your right as you're leaving. I want to invite you, if you missed last week and you are a believer in Jesus, I want to invite you to sign your name on that sign. And, and let me just recap uh, something that Eric said last week to remind us what it means when we put our name on that sign. When you declare yourself as a believer in Jesus, it, it means more than just you believe the historical facts about Jesus, that you know, he was a person and that he died and, and, and even that he was resurrected. Eric reminded us, even demons understand and know and believe in that sense in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So what does it mean for us to believe in Jesus? It means to believe in him as our savior. In other words, to put our trust in him, to shift our trust in our own efforts to rescue ourselves, save ourselves, make ourselves something and put our trust on him. It's connected to the verse that Krista just read. He must increase, but I must decrease. And if you are a believer in Jesus in the sense that you've put your trust in him, I wanna encourage you to write your name on that sign. That sign's a visible expression of the body of Christ at Fellowship Bible Church. And we would love to have your name on that. So you can sign it on your way out if you're a believer in Jesus. I wanna pick up the text from where Eric left off. When, technically, what we're gonna do is we're, we're gonna move forward and finish the rest of chapter three. So if you haven't yet, open your Bibles to John chapter three, and we're gonna walk through 22 to 36 this morning. Now, it's a pretty lengthy section. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on certain parts, but that middle par paragraph that Krista read is where I really wanna focus our time. So we'll kind of um, go a little faster through the, the first and, and third portions and spend a lot more time on that second part. So let's begin in verse 22 of John chapter three. I'll read 22 to 24 and give a brief explanation. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. These three verses are significant because they're the only time in the written record we know that Jesus and John the Baptist were ministering simultaneously. Most of Jesus's ministry happened after John was arrested and killed. And that's why we get that parenthetical reference there. Uh, this happened before. So you have John the Baptist baptizing people and then not too far away you have Jesus Technically, Jesus' disciples, we'll, we'll learn that in chapter four, it was Jesus' disciples that were baptizing, baptizing people in Jesus' name. And so you have this interesting moment in time where John the Baptist and Jesus' uh, ministries overlapped, so to speak. Now, here's what you need to know to understand the next verses that I'm about to read. You need to understand that at that time, John the Baptist was the more famous of the two. It seems strange to us now, 
But at that point, there were people that thought John the Baptist was the Messiah. And John the Baptist was the one that had all the followers and was creating all the buzz and all the excitement. So with that in mind, let's read the next few verses, starting verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, of course, talking about Jesus, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. That's how you have to read that last phrase. All are going to him. They're they're concerned that John's John's, uh, um, uh, footprint, that that John's ministry is diminishing and Jesus's is increasing. They're like, look, he's getting more followers than you. You know, his people are baptizing more than our people are. This should concern you, John the Baptist. I imagine them making suggestions to him like, Maybe it's time you stop talking about eating locusts and honey. People are grossed out by that. Or maybe you need to up your game a little bit and and let's add some additional lighting in in a smoke machine down by the water so when people come up out of the water, it looks really more dramatic, you know? And let me just pause there for a minute. We laugh. But I gotta tell you, as a, a leader of a church, sometimes these are the shenanigans that go on in the church world. Like, oh, we've heard that that church down the road is, is doubling in size and tripling in size because they've got so-and-so as their worship leader or their, their messages or whatever. We need to up our game. Guys, there's nothing new under the sun. This is what's happening to John the Baptist and, and his disciples were, were, were offended that someone's becoming more popular than their rabbi. And you have to look at John the Baptist's response because there's so much from it that we can learn. So let's take a look. Verse 27, this is the part that Krista read for us. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must uh, decrease. Such a rich response. I wanna break it into two sections. This is the paragraph that we're really gonna dig into and spend some time in because I want you to see some things. So the first section here is is verse 27 all the way down to the first half of verse 29. And the big idea here that John is saying is he's saying, I know my role. I know my role role. Uh, I love what he says, this, this first sentence in 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Okay, remember the context is John's followers coming to him and saying, you, you, gotta, you gotta do something about this. There's someone else out there that's getting more followers than you. He's, he's baptizing more people than you are. What is John saying? I cannot do a single step toward my own ambition. The ones that I've baptized, John says, are only the ones that the Father has put into my sphere of influence. The, the size of my ministry, so to speak, is only the extent of what the Father has given from heaven. I cannot take one step toward my own ambition. He knows his role. He's not confused. His role is not to be the Messiah. And he, he says that even more clearly, verse 28. You heard what I said. 
I am not the Christ. In other words, this is not the first time I've said this to you, but I want to remind you. I am not the Christ. I've been sent before the Christ. That's his role. So John knows his role. And then in verse 29, he, he, he backs this up with, with a wonderful analogy. He, he essentially says, look, I'm, I'm like the best man of a wedding. You know, the, the one who has the bride, he's the groom. He's the one that, that the day is about. It's not about me. Now, if you've been to a wedding, been in a wedding, seen a wedding, and probably just about everybody in the room has, you know the job of the best man. Okay, when I, I officiate quite a few weddings and when, when I meet the, the bridal party at the rehearsal, the, the one that I'm, I'm most interested in, uh, in, in having a conversation with is the best man. Because what I've found is usually the best man is just there for the party, but I need him to focus. Like I need him to get in the game. So I'll look at the best man straight in the eyes and I'll say, why are you here? You know, and he'll normally say, because, uh, you know, Chris is getting married. Yes, but why are you here? Why did he choose you? Well, because I'm his best friend. Well, what does he need from you? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Let me tell you what he needs from you. He needs you to serve him. He needs you to be here for him. In fact, I'm gonna want you to hold on to the rings for safekeeping, you know? Kind of his eyes open up a little bit bigger than that. I'm gonna need you to hold on to the marriage license so the groom doesn't have to keep track of that. Okay, and then when we get to the rehearsal, I'll, may, I'll say this, I'll say, bride and groom, if in the exchange of the rings, if a ring drops, I don't want either of you to bend down and, and get your tux or your dress dirty. That's not your job. And I look at the, the best man and I say, it's your job. If a ring drops, I want you to get on your hands and knees. It doesn't matter what you look like. <laughs> it's all about the bride and the groom. And you start to get the idea. Imagine if you know, a wedding ceremony started with the pastor saying, we're gathered here today to exalt the best man. <laughs> no one would say that, you know, it's not about him. And we all understand it's not about him. That's why this is such a great analogy. John is saying, it's not about me. And then I love what he says in this last line here. He, he's, he says this, therefore, in light of all this, this joy of mine is now complete. So he's saying, don't get this romantic idea that I'm some tragic figure that now is gonna ride off into the sunset all sad when someone else takes my place of glory. Oh no, this is a triumphant moment for me, John says, that my ministry is decreasing because Jesus's ministry is increasing. And my whole purpose for being was to glorify Jesus Christ. So this is the second big idea in this paragraph. John is saying this, my joy is in Jesus's glory. John's role was to go before Jesus. John's role was to serve Jesus like a friend of the bridegroom serves the groom. And when that marriage ceremony comes, there is joy in the heart of the best man because of what the groom is receiving, because the attention is on the wedding, the ceremony, the union of the two. One last comment on what John the Baptist is getting after here. He is intentionally putting himself underneath and behind Jesus Christ. 
What do you call someone who intentionally places themselves underneath or behind someone else? You call them a follower or maybe a disciple. So in this sense, even though John the Baptist never followed Jesus literally as one of the 12, he's putting himself in the posture of a follower of Jesus, in the posture of a disciple of Jesus. So what he's saying to his own disciples is he's saying, not only am I not offended that Jesus' star is on the rise, but I myself am gonna follow him. Not only am I not offended that he has more followers than I do, I myself am gonna follow him and I'm gonna encourage all of my followers, you guys, to follow him too. Jesus is following, or sorry, John the Baptist is learning to follow Jesus with his whole heart and help others do the same. And so he gets to this last little sentence, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I just wanna tell you guys, what a beautiful word for all of us who claim to be followers of Jesus. To follow someone by definition means to put yourself behind or underneath them. And so if you wrote your name, if you signed your name on that board, you were proclaiming, I'm a believer in Jesus. Therefore, I'm also a follower of Jesus. I put my trust in him. I'm one of his followers and I'm gonna put him above me. I'm gonna put but, but, but myself behind him. Most people in the world don't follow anybody. They don't follow anybody. Why do most people in the world not say, I'm a follower of so-and-so, I'm a follower of so-and-so? Because they don't want to follow anybody. They want to be their own person. They want to be their own. They want to say, I want, I want to follow myself. I want to follow my heart. I want to follow my dreams. If you signed your name on that board, you are a follower of Jesus. You cannot follow Jesus and be your own master. This is what this is getting after. Just like you couldn't be a follower of a craftsman or an apprentice of a craftsman, and be your own master. The role of the apprentice, the role of the follower, the role of the disciple is to be under the authority of the master. So anyone who wishes to follow Jesus must take this same posture. I must decrease, he must increase. It's a posture of humility. Now, this is the application part of the message. I know we have more text to go, but I wanna go ahead and pause here for the application and then we'll finish the text. If we're honest... Most of us will admit there's a, follow, there's a part of me that wants to follow Jesus and there's a part of me that doesn't. I know that's true of me. Most of us would say there's a part of me that would say, he must increase, amen, hallelujah, Jesus exalted. But I must decrease? Why do I have to decrease in order for him increase. I don't want to decrease. In other words, there's a part of each of us, I think, that would say this, I'm grateful that Jesus saved me, but I don't really want to come under his authority. Not in all things, not completely. You know, at least let me pick and choose. I don't really want to come under his authority in all things. Now, I, I want to help you integrate these two parts. The part of you that says, I want Jesus to be glorified, and the part of you that says, but I don't want to decrease. <laughs> yes to Jesus increasing. I'm not so sure about me decreasing. I, I want to integrate these two parts for you. And, and here's what's helped me. What's helped me in this is coming to a deeper understanding of the concept of humility. What is humility actually? Because certainly this is a wonderful expression of humility, is it not? He must increase, I must decrease. Um, he must increase, but I must decrease. So our, the world around us would define humility this way. In fact, this comes from Oxford Dictionary. A modest or low view of one's own importance. 
I don't like that definition. Because when humility is defined as a modest or low view of one's own importance, it doesn't spur any desire in me to go after that. <laughs> Who wants a modest or low view of one's own importance? And, and is that even biblical, by the way? I wanna say that's not a biblical definition of humility. Let me give you a different way to think about humility. And this is, this is what I've, I've come to, my, my own definition of humility from thinking about this and studying this in the scripture for a long time. I, a long time ago, I did a massive word study on humility because I wanted to figure out what it was all about. And this is my conclusion from, from that word study. In the Bible, humility is a true perspective of your place in God's universe. Now, that, that's the starting point. I won't answer all your questions, but, but let, me, let me read it again because it's important. Humility is a true perspective of your place in God's universe. What does the Bible teach you about your place in God's universe? Two important concepts. Number one, in comparison to God, you are very, very small. But number two, because you bear God's image, you are very, very important. That's a true perspective of your place in God's universe. On the one hand, you are very, very small. So much of the word humility in the Bible are people that did not humble themselves before God. In other words, they did not recognize God is their creator. God's their master. God is sovereign over all and they're tiny and puny. You can't challenge God. It's a lack of humility. But there's this other part too, this part that, that you'd say, but, but if that's true, if I'm very, very small, then why does it matter? I don't matter at all. The Bible doesn't teach you that. The Bible teaches you're very important, but you're not very important because of your talent, your looks, your skills, your ability, your race, your background, wealth. That doesn't make you important. None of it does. What makes you important is you're made in the image of God. That levels the playing field. So all the people out there that aren't as talented as you, that aren't as wealthy as you, that come from a different background as you, they're just as important as you. And you don't really believe that if you're an arrogant person. You say you do, but if you're an arrogant person, you think, no, I, I get it, but I really have an edge. And the Bible would say, no, you don't. No, you don't. You're very, very small in relation to God, but you're very, very important because you bear his image. That means you're important to God and you're important in the world. Now, when you understand humility this way, you actually see that you can miss humility in two directions. You can miss it through arrogance or you can miss it through self-deprecation. The arrogant person says, I'm important because of what I bring to the table, my intelligence, my wealth, my skill, my looks, my coolness, my background. The self-deprecating person says, I'm not important because I don't have anything to bring to the table. Biblical view of understanding will demolish both of those perspectives. It will level the playing field. You are very small compared to God, but because you bear his image, you are very, very important to him and very important in the world. Uh, maybe I'd summarize it this way. Neither the prideful person nor the self-deprecating person is comfortable in their own skin because their sense of worth is centered on themselves. So think about John the Baptist. He's holding this balance beautifully. When he says, I must decrease, he's not saying I'm nothing, I don't matter, I'm not important. Well, he's just compared himself to the, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man. That's an important role. Can you see yourself in this picture? 
you blow your mind a little bit more. In the picture of the wedding ceremony that John the Baptist is presenting, he's the best man. Where are you? Where are you in the wedding ceremony? Someone shout it out. We're the bride. We're the bride. We're the ones Jesus has come to rescue. Oh my goodness, do you see? This just goes deeper and deeper. You're very small compared to God, but you're very, very important. Jesus has come for you, holding those two things. That's humility. Let me give you a picture of this. One last thing. Um, this was on my mind because I use an illustration every time I teach our discipleship intensive classes. Some of you in the room, if you've been through that year one intensive, you've seen this illustration, but many, most of you have not. So I wanted to show you this. If you're having trouble integrating this idea, you're small but important, I want you to think about this. Uh, imagine if the God the Father had the fridge. It'd be Jesus' picture on the fridge, right? Don't fall for that false narrative. If God had a fridge, your picture would be on it. You know, that, that's a well-intentioned person that's trying to make you feel better about yourself. The reality is, if God the Father had a fridge, Jesus' picture would be on it. Jesus is the son. Jesus is the one that gets all the glory. Jesus is the one that the Father has delight in. Oh, but look more closely. Look more closely. If you zoom in on the face of Jesus Christ, there you are. There I am. There we are. All of us who have put our faith in Jesus are in Jesus and this is not just a cute little illustration. This is biblical theology. This is the apostle Paul saying, you are in Christ. This is Jesus himself in the last supper when he's saying, my, my prayer is that you would be in me and I would be in you as I am in the father. This is the unity that is ours in Jesus Christ. This is the body of Christ. So how good is this, guys? Let this free you up to be able to decrease because here's what happens. Go ahead and go to the next one. As you decrease, guess who increases? But it's not threatening to you at all, is it? It's not threatening because you're in Christ. And just as you did not earn your way onto the fridge, you cannot get yourself off of the fridge Amen. because you're in him. He must increase but I must decrease, but my joy is made complete because I am in him and he is in me. As this is the biblical way to think about your place in the universe. Now, we've got one more section of text to cover. So let's, let's go back to our text and, and finish this so we can celebrate these baptisms this morning. In verse 31, the point of view shifts from John the Baptist back to John the Apostle, uh, John the disciple, the, the writer of the book of John. He's gonna give some commentary that summarizes really some theology of the first three chapters of the book. He who comes from above is above all. Obviously talking about Jesus. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Talking about us and including John the Baptist. He who comes from heaven is above all, Jesus. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. But, verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Because Jesus is the image of God himself. 
John chapter one, verse 34. For he whom God sent, Jesus, utters the words of God. I mean, he is God speaking, right? For he gives the spirit without measure. Jesus is gonna talk a lot more about the spirit later in John. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. All right, I'm gonna close off by talking about this last verse. Two quick concepts. The first is this. Notice how seamlessly John equates belief and obedience. He, he's writing a parallel structure. Do you, do you see this here? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey, you'd think he would say whoever does not believe. He says whoever does not obey shall not see life. He's equating belief and obedience. He's saying they're two sides of the same coin. So here's a way to think about it. For John, belief is never just in your head. It's a lived expression. For John, the act of believing is an act of obedience. And the act of following Jesus is an act of belief. You can't separate obedience and belief. You can't separate faith and following. And if you remember the coin analogy when we studied through James, you know, you can't separate the heads from the tails. It's two sides of the same coin. So faith and works go together. That's James's point as well as John's point. To believe in Jesus and obey Jesus are two sides of the same thing. Second, let's talk about wrath. We need to talk about wrath, but the wrath of God remains on him. Remains on who? Remains on the person who does not believe. Yes, that was their cue. I said, your cue to get ready for baptism is when I talk about the wrath of God. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Very good. Um, why do we need to talk about wrath? Because people don't wanna talk about wrath these days. People are afraid in church to talk about God's wrath. Uh, and, and I wanna reclaim this word this morning, if I can, because it's an important biblical concept. Uh, here's the reason why I think we have difficulty with the word wrath is we only know wrath in a negative sense. Our, our only earthly experience with wrath is from sinful people angry at us. Maybe some of you have endured the wrath of other people in various forms, and you've been wounded and damaged by that. And so your brain has a very hard time associating something negative, wrath, with someone who's supposed to be wholly good, God. So the first thing I want to say about this this morning is, although our experience with wrath in humans is not good, the wrath of God is good. The wrath of God is good. Now, how could that be, Rob? Well, the more you understand the reality of evil, the more you'll come to see the goodness of God's wrath. Because in the Bible, God's wrath is directed toward the evil in the world. If you have a personal experience with, with evil, and, and, and I mean evil in some form that, that was so wounding towards you and so hurtful towards you, you, you can't excuse that away. You can say, well, the, the person that hurt me, he didn't know any better. The, the person that hurt me, they, they were just angry. All those things may be true, but at the core of all that, the core of all that, the Bible would say, the core of all that is darkness, is, is blackness, is a reality of evil. And, and in fact, the personification of evil 
the Bible tells us, has a name. He's Lucifer. He is the enemy of God. He's the one that Jesus himself said he has come to steal and kill and destroy. Evil's real. And so the more you can accept evil is real, the more you can come, come to see if evil is real, then, then, then I want God to be angry at evil. I, I, I want God to, to love the world so much that he wants to destroy the evil in the world. And that's exactly what wrath is. Wrath is God's determination to destroy the evil in the world that he loves. So if you think about it that way, you think about, well, wrath is a part of God's love for the world. How did John 3, 16 start? Think back last week. For God so loved the world. Why did Jesus have to die for goodness sakes? Because God himself came to absorb the wrath. All the evil was placed on Jesus Christ. Now, if you understand God's wrath is against the evil in the world and you start to see, okay, maybe God's wrath could be a good thing. Not only that, if you really understand your own heart, you realize, okay, I've got a problem because the evil is not just out there. The evil is also in here. In other words, when you're born into this dark, fallen place, which is the Bible says, this is, this is currently a world of darkness and the prince of darkness temporarily is ruling over this dark place. When you're born into this dark place, you can't help but get the darkness on you. You can't, you can't help to have the evil on you, in you. This is the part of our fallenness. And so the evil in the world is not just external to us. It is internal in us. We're not just in the fallen world. We're a part of the fallen world. We are each victims of evil and perpetrators of evil against others. Haven't we all been wounded and haven't we all wounded others? So God's determination to destroy the evil in the world he loves has serious implications for us. But Jesus, but the good news of Jesus is that God himself came to absorb the wrath, his own wrath, his just wrath toward the evil in the world. God said, I will not wipe out the earth again. I will not wipe out humanity again. I myself will come in the person of Jesus Christ, and I will drink the cup of wrath. And so Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's wrestling with this. He, he knows what's ahead of him. And he says, Father, if there's any way that I don't have to drink this cup, you ever thought about what cup is he talking about? It's not a cup of pain. That was only a part of it. There's a reference to the Old Testament, the cup of wrath. And Jesus willingly drank it to the dregs. He absorbed the wrath, God's wrath to all evil, so that whosoever believes in him is no longer under wrath. But anyone that does not believe or obey, you know, those two go hand in hand, according to this verse, the wrath of God remains on him. This is what John is teaching. We dare not minimize it. We dare not avoid it. We dare not water it down. Here's how I would summarize it. The wrath of God is good. And what's even better 
is his provision for us in Jesus Christ. So come under the umbrella of God's grace, the umbrella of God's mercy. Accept the gift. The wrath of God has been satisfied. Step under that. Don't don't be one of those ones that would say, I don't think I need mercy because there's no evil in me. Don't be foolish. Step under the umbrella of grace and mercy and invite Jesus to cleanse you of sin and put your trust in him.